SoFi's growing revenues at 50% year over year, every single quarter, quarter after quarter. And they're trading in a lower book multiple than Bank of America and Wells Fargo. It's absurd. The pricing on SoFi stock is absolutely crazy. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, please be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, I got my Christmas vest on. I got my Christmas mug, some Christmas lights behind me. I'm excited for the holiday season. How how are we doing this week? I am I am happy that you are ready for the holiday season. I am too. How are we doing this week? Um, I well. The central banks are trying to cancel Christmas. I'm not going to let them. Um, you know, they, 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 can put, they can put coal in the stockings all they want, but I'm going to I'm going to find a couple of gifts under that tree, and um, I'm going to make sure next Christmas is a lot better. So, yeah, that that's how things are going. I'm not going to let the spirit of Christmas be canceled by a central banker. All right. Well, looking forward to hearing all of that in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke. Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, the housing market, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Okay, Luke, I want to get to some of the banking stuff, but first I want to touch on one of your favorite fintech stocks, uh, SoFi. CEO Anthony Noto just bought $5 million worth of stock. You've always looked at insider buying as an important metric of a company, and this is a pretty big number. So Mm -hmm. the question is, A, why is he so bullish? And B, should we be joining him and buying SoFi stock big for 2023? Yeah, so I'm I'm checking right now, and it looks like yesterday he actually bought another 2.4 million. So he bought five million dollars on December 13th at an average price of four dollars and 42 cents, and he bought another 2.4 million dollars on December 19th. So yesterday at an average price of $4.59. So in the month of December, in the past week actually specifically, um, he has bought $7.4 million worth of SoFi stock. Now people that are familiar with SoFi and and Anthony Noto know that he has been buying um, a lot of stock for a long time. He went on a big buying spree earlier this year from March, He's gone on a big buying spree in March, won another big one in May. And those were big purchases, but those were always purchases around the 100,000, 50,000, 250,000. I think the biggest purchase in that time span was was $300,000. Yeah, it was $300,000. It was his biggest single purchase uh, in, in those. Um, <laughs> So $7.4 million is a pretty big jump from $300,000. Exactly, exactly. That's kind of the point I'm getting at is that, yes, Nodo has been buying all year long and the stock has been declining. He started his buying in March when the stock was around eight bucks. Um, He did another round of buying in May and June when the stock was around, you know, six bucks. 
And now he's doing a third round and buying with the stock in, in the four to five dollar range, right around the four fifty range. So yes, he's been buying all year long, but his buying got a lot bigger. So he took a, a six month pause basically. Last buy before this most recent one was June sixteenth. That was a three hundred thousand dollar buy. Took six months off. Then he put five million and two point four million. So these are by far and away his most significant purchases of SoFi stock to date. They represent massive votes of confidence in the company. Um, and I think the reason, and first off, I think this is a person you want to listen to and you want to follow. Um, this is not just some, you know, who's Anthony Noto, dude? Who's this CEO? This is a guy that is a Wall Street exec has a lot of experience on Wall Street, knows stocks, knows finance, was the CFO of Twitter, was the CFO of the NFL. He knows how stocks work. He knows how numbers work. He knows how cash flows work. He knows how banks work. So him being bullish is, in my opinion, even more bullish than just a regular CEO being bullish because this is a person that not only knows his business intimately better than any of us, but also somebody who understands Wall Street intimately, knows how stocks work intimately. Twitter stocked very well under his reign as CFO. So I think this is somebody you want to listen to. Why is he being bullish? I can't tell you exactly why. He knows more about the company than I do. But the fact that he put $7.4 million to work in a matter of a week before the holidays going into what is supposed to be a recession in 23, I mean, you don't have a bigger, there's no such thing as a bigger vote of confidence than that. So he obviously sees something in the business and the operating metrics that is getting him exceptionally bullish. I love the stock, obviously. You have a stock that is trading, a, a bank stock, a banking-like stock, trading at 0.8 times book value. Wells Fargo trades at around one times book value. Bank of America trades at around one times book value. Those are mature, established banks that aren't growing revenues at all. SoFi is growing revenues at 50% year over year, every single quarter, quarter after quarter. And they're trading in a lower book multiple than Bank of America and Wells Fargo. It's absurd. The pricing on SoFi stock is absolutely crazy. So is he seeing the valuation, seeing a huge discount? Maybe. Is he seeing something in the operational metrics that makes him super bullish? Maybe. Does he think the Fed's going to pivot in 2023 and that things are going to be a lot better for the banking district, for the banking industry, for the fintech industry? Maybe. Does he know something about Biden and the uh, student loan moratorium? Does he have some visibility into that situation? Maybe. The fact of the matter is the reason I'm able to ask so many questions about, you know, what, what is he seeing and why there could be so many answers that shows that there are a lot of dormant catalysts for SoFi stock. It's too cheap for its own good. It could soar when interest rates turn around. It could soar when the economy stabilizes. It could soar when the student loan moratorium situation is all figured out. There are so many reasons this stock could absolutely soar over the next 12 months. So to me, it's no wonder the CEO is buying $7.4 million worth of stock. If I had that type of capital and was a CEO of the company, I would buy $7.4 million worth of stock too. So I think this is a purchase you want to follow. I think this is a purchase you want to get bullish on. I think this is a stock you do want to bet big on going into 2023. I think it's dramatically undervalued. And whether I think it can reverse course sharply in 23 because I have a, a positive outlook on the macros. 
But even if it doesn't reverse core sharply in 2023, this is a stock that is a multi-bagger from current levels over a three to five year window. And this stock is easily worth 20, 25, $30 within three to five years. So down here below five, I think it's a stock you have to buy, you have to hold, and you have to watch it grow, give it time to grow over the next three to five years. And that's what Anthony Noto is doing. I mean, let's, let's, I mean, if you add up all these purchases year to date, I think he's like at maybe 10, 11, $12 million bought of the stock year to date. I mean, the guy's going in and, and you got to respect it. And I think you have to follow it. So I, I'm very bullish on, on this, this purchase by Anthony Noto. You, you mentioned how there was a little bit of a pause between this recent, you know, massive right. buy and some of the earlier buys he had in the early part of the year. Does timing right now with everything else that's going on play a factor into this? Or is it just, hey, this is a good price right now and I'm going to go all in with this 7.4? Yeah, I mean, he seems to buy big when the stock takes a big dip. So, like, you know, mm-hmm. in, in March, it took a big dip. It got into that $7, $8 range, and then he bought he bought a lot. And then it took another big dip into that $6 range, and then he bought a lot. And now it's taking another big dip below 5 and, and he's bought a lot. So I think maybe with him, the timing thing is just he is exceptionally bullish on his business and his company and his firm and his stock price. And every time that stock price takes a big leg lower – he goes in. He goes in hard. He goes in aggressively. And I think that this most recent one, I mean, it is the most recent one is the most aggressive buying yet. And I, again, I think you have to respect that. This is not this is somebody that knows a lot about stocks, somebody that knows a lot about finance, somebody that knows how this game works. He's putting money to work. I, I think you want to follow that. I definitely think you want to follow that. OK, I want to get back to individual stocks and sectors in just a moment. But first, specifically, since you mentioned at the top of the call, I want to zoom out and look at some of the macros. A lot has happened in the financial market since we spoke even a week ago. You know, we got super we got a super softer inflation print. Uh, mm-hmm. But then the big rate hike from the Fed, a hawkish Fed press conference, big heights from the ECB and the BOE. And then even today, the uh, Bank of Japan did something pretty hawkish, right? right. Um, our What's going on right now? Yeah, so central banks are just behind the curve like they always are. Um, they were behind the curve in fighting inflation, and now they're behind the curve in, in avoiding a recession. Um, we just got to get – we got to set the table right now. Let's, let's just be crystal clear on this. The inflation fight is over. We are now in a recession fight. Inflation is on its way out. It has peaked. It is coming down. It is crashing. Inflation doesn't do little head fakes. You know, it doesn't come down for three or four months. It's actually come down for six months now. It doesn't come down for six straight months and then all of a sudden reverse course. Inflation moves in long trends. When it goes up, it goes up for years. When it comes down, it comes down for years. It moves in long trends, long strokes. So, we are down five months in a row, going to be six months with the December CPI. That's We're not going to all of a sudden just reverse course and go higher on inflation. No, that's not how it works. Once the disinflation trend is in motion, it stays in motion for a long time, a lot longer than six months. In fact, normally disinflation waves like this last two to three years. So we're in the early innings of this disinflation wave. The rate hikes are working. The economy is slowing. The inflation fight is over. But the Fed doesn't want to, and all central banks, ECB, the Bank of England is kind of, they're in a different situation because England's in a completely different situation. But um, the Fed, 
the ECB, even the Bank of Japan, which has historically been the most dovish of all central banks, you know, they're all still growing more and more hawkish with time. And I think the reason they're doing that is because the Fed has a dual mandate and central banks have a dual mandate. But let's talk about the Fed specifically right now. The Fed has a dual mandate. That mandate, that dual mandate does not include your stock portfolio. That mandate includes full employment and price stability. Those are the only two things they really care about. So what's happening right now with, with them hiking rates? Stocks are going down, the economy's slowing, but the job market's still healthy. So they're, the second part of their mandate, full employment, is still being satisfied. If one part of your mandate has not been satisfied and the other part is being satisfied, Aren't you going to continue to fight the good fight to get this part of your mandate satisfied as well? Yes, you're going to do that until the other part of your mandate starts to get compromised. So that's what's going on right now is the Fed is still fighting the inflation fight because job numbers are still healthy. And that's really all they care about. They don't care about your stock portfolios. Uh, they only care about those things to the extent that they impact job numbers. And right now, job numbers remain good. But as we all know, Job numbers are a lagging indicator. Labor is a mm -hmm. lagging indicator. You can't look at job numbers and say the economy is healthy because jobs are the last thing to go, the very last domino to fall and an economic slowdown or a recession. So if we wait for the job numbers to get bad before the Fed to pivot, then, you know, all hell will break loose and we will fall into a deep recession. And so that's why Wall Street, every time the Fed does this, this is not the first time the Fed does this. The Fed is always the last to get the memo that the rate hikes are working. What Wall Street does is try to send the Fed a message. Wall Street, mm -hmm. give them a couple slaps, shake them on the shoulders and says, wake up. You can't look at the job data. You have to be proactive, not reactive. And this happens time and time and time again. Most recently, it happened in late 2018. The Fed was hiking rates consistently into a slowing economy. The inflation fight was over. The Fed kept hiking rates. Wall Street was like, what are you doing? The job numbers are good. That's why the Fed kept doing it. But Wall Street was like, what are you doing? You're sending us into a recession. So what did Wall Street do? They said, all right, Fed, let's play this game. They shook the Fed. They sent stocks down 20% into a bear market. And then boom, in December 2018, and then boom, January 2019, the Fed stopped hiking rates. They went into a pause and stocks soared in 2019. So we saw it happen in December 2018, January 2019. Fed hikes into a slowdown. Wall Street throws a fit. Fed pauses. Stocks soar. This also happened. I have the historical examples pull up here on my computer. This also happened in 2015, 2016. The Fed had hiked rates for the first time since the great financial crisis in late 2015. But that was when the economy was slowing. We we're going through a commodity crisis. And so Wall Street was like, what are you doing? Why did you just hike rates for the first time ever when we're going through, you know, a very rough and turbulent economic period? So Wall Street was like, all right, you know, you want to play this game? We'll play this game. Sent stocks crashing lower in January. And then later that month, the Fed paused. The Fed didn't hike anymore. They, they, they went flat. Then stocks soared in 2016. So we saw that in 2015, 2016, Fed hikes into an economic slowdown. Wall Street throws a fit. Fed pivots, pauses, and stocks soar. This also happened actually before the great financial crisis. So in 2000s, people don't remember this, before the great financial crisis actually hit, the stock market had a pretty big melt up in 2006, 2007. And that's because the Fed paused. So in 2006, the Fed was hiking into an economic slowdown. Wall Street said, cut it out. 
through a tantrum, sent stocks lower. Fed paused in, I believe it was uh, in late 2000s, mid 2006. And then we rallied massively from mid 06 to late 07. Big, big stock rally. So again, we see this pattern of Fed hikes into a slowdown. Wall Street throws a fit. Fed pauses, stocks soar. Also happened in 1995. I mean, throughout history, this has happened time and time again. We've seen this rodeo before. The Fed is always the last to get the memo that their rate hikes are working because they pay attention to jobs data and jobs data is lagging. So Wall Street wakes them up, throws a fit, Fed gets the memo, pauses, and stocks soar. It's the same cycle. History repeats over and over and over and over and over again. So that's what we're seeing right now. The Fed. So, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No. So, uh, so I, I think you've painted a really clear picture of what's going on with the Fed, but what's going on with the banks then? You said that the banks have a dual mandate as well. What's going on there? Well, the Fed is the central bank and all central banks across the globe have that same mandate. So they're all looking at jobs data. They're all looking at lagging data and they're all hiking rates into a slowdown because they think they can because the, the jobs market is still very healthy. And what's actually really interesting about the jobs market is we all think the, jo- the numbers look great. But I mean, it's, it's kind of funny, right? It, the jobs numbers come out the first Friday of the month for the previous month. So sometimes that's like on December 2nd or December 3rd or November 1st, right? Like within one day of the end of the month, you know how many jobs were added in the previous month. That's crazy. Like I I can't even keep track of like all the kids in my neighborhood, you know, over the past week, let alone, you know, all the jobs added in the entire U.S. economy, you know, one day after the month ended. So obviously there's sampling statistics used there, but the fact of the matter is what I'm trying to get at is the jobs data is very timely, but it's often subject to big revisions. And during times of economic turbulence or during big turning points in the economy, whether we're going from bust to boom or boom to bust, those revisions tend to be very, very, very significant. And actually, uh, in the second quarter last week, the Philadelphia Fed put out a report that said, um, the job numbers we got in the second quarter of 2022. So the Philadelphia Fed comes out one quarter after and does their revision on what the jobs numbers actually were in the previous quarter. And they did that for the second quarter of 2022. They released their report a week ago and they said, you know, the data that was initially released um, reported, you know, 1.1 million jobs added in the second quarter of 2022. Well, you know, when we went through and actually did a deeper survey and deeper dive into the data and, and looked at the real numbers, um, we found that only 10,000 jobs were added in the second quarter of 2022. So, you know, that that's a big difference. 1.1 million jobs to 10,000 jobs? I mean, we're, what I'm trying to get at here is that the, the jobs data the Fed is relying upon uh, is not just lagging. It actually may be just completely flat out wrong. And that is that's mm-hmm. the risk that we're looking at right now. That's the risk that the Fed keeps looking at that data and watch us into a recession. But I have faith that's not going to happen. And the reason I have faith that's going to happen is because, again, this is the same cycle we've seen before. Wall Street sniffs it out, wakes the Fed up, the Fed listens, pauses, and we rally. And it happens every single time. So so understanding those two mandates, as, as you've kind of pointed it out, and knowing that like these are run by very smart people, it seems, are the central ba- banks trying to crash the market? And if so, should we try and fight the Fed? Because that's what 
dip buying seems like these days. We're fighting the Fed by buying the dip, right? Right, right. Yeah. So obviously the age old saying is don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed. And I, and I get that. I really do. But every once in a while, it does pay off to fight the Fed. And I think that it, when you have a reason to believe that the Fed is kind of blowing hot air, which is, I think, what they're doing right now. I mean, the Fed, they're walking a very fine line. And I actually think they're doing a good job. I, I really do. Like, this is just all part of the process. If they were to telegraph that they're going to pivot or they're going to pause, then you will get re-acceleration of inflation and then we're going to have to do this whole rodeo all over again. That's what we saw in the 70s, right? You had the peak of inflation in 74, it came down in 75, and then the, you know, the Fed let up way too early and we re-accelerated into the late 70s, and then Volcker had to really take the hammer and go absolutely crazy in the early 80s. So... Um, they know that they know they can't do that, but at the same time, they don't want to walk the economy into recession. So they're trying to, to thread the needle of, okay, we need to really sufficiently stomp out inflation, but maybe not, uh, not, not turn the economy upside down. And they're doing that through tough talk because that's where we are in, in the game that they know that, you know, Powell takes the state. We rallied so big last Tuesday on that soft inflation print. And then Powell takes the stage. They do exactly as is expected. Yet he has a hawkish press conference and the dot plots are higher. So nothing actually changed in terms of interest rates. That was, it wasn't expected. They went 50. We all saw 50 coming. No mm -hmm. surprise there. All that really changed was the rhetoric and the guidance. That alone has caused the stock market to drop five days in a row and pretty big drops. That alone has caused treasury yields to soar from 3.4% to 3.77%. That alone has caused financial conditions to tighten meaningfully. So they know they're at the point of the game where they really don't need to execute rate hikes to get their point across to, to really tighten financial conditions and bring inflation in. All they have to do is talk tough. They, they, they talk tough on Wednesday. Boom. Five straight days of tighter financial conditions, significantly tighter financial conditions across the financial market. So they talk tough and it's going to work. And my prediction is that, OK, here's what's going to happen. Market throws a fit in December and into January. The data comes in consistently light. Revisions to previous jobs data get cut significantly. The Fed starts to really listen. Everybody starts to get worried about a big recession. And then the Fed pauses in February. They hike one last time in February and then pause. And that's the last rate hike. And then stocks really start to rally and start to take off because that is the cycle we see repeat through history every single time. Fed hikes into a slowdown. Wall Street throws a fit, Fed pauses, stocks soar. One, two, three, four. We're in part two right now. The market throws a tantrum. Let the market throw its tantrum. Let the Fed get the lesson. The Fed will pause and then we will rally. It's a pretty simple um, path forward in, in my opinion. And so that's why despite the very nasty recent price action, I remain very constructive on the outlook for stocks in 2023 and that between December 2022 and December 2023 stock prices will go higher and probably a lot higher okay Luke with all that said let's make it simple real quick what's your price target for the S&P 500 next year where are stocks going overall Right. Yeah. Great question. Um, so I have a call for an at least 20% up year next year. 
And that is based on two things. So when you really boil it down, you know, we talked about this before, what drives stocks, uh, multiples and earnings. So how much a company is earning and how much investors are willing to pay for those earnings, the multiple willing to pay for those earnings. Those are the two things at the end of the day that drive stocks. P multiple times earnings equals stock price. Pretty simple. So let's, let's look at those two drivers. Let's first talk about the P multiple. What people don't understand is that, and maybe some people do understand this, but I, I think it's really misunderstood in, in the media. Because um, a lot of people are like, stocks aren't, aren't, you know, stocks are still richly valued at 17 times earnings. Like, they're still pretty expensive. I, 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 do, blah, blah. I get it. I get it. Okay. But one, 17 times earnings is actually the 50 year historical average PE multiple for the S&P 500. So valuations were excessive and now they've retreated all the way back to their long term historical average. Yet treasury yields, the average 10 year treasury yield of the past 50 years is about 6%. We're at 3.6%. So PE multiples have fully reverted back to their long-term averages. Treasury yields remain about half their long-term averages. To me, that means stocks are pretty undervalued from a PE multiple perspective. So that's the first thing we need to understand about PE multiples. The second thing we need to understand about PE multiples is that every single time, every single damn time over the past 50 years, that inflation has peaked and come down, PE multiples go up. Every time, without exception, when inflation drops, P multiples rise. Doesn't matter if the starting P multiple is eight times or the starting P multiple is 20 times as it was in the late 90s. Every time inflation comes down, P multiples go up. And the correlation is actually pretty tight around a variance of one to two points. So for every point of disinflation, we get one to two points of multiple expansion. When the disinflation is very large, you get about a half a point of multiple expansion for every point of disinflation. So we're looking at inflation. It peaked at 9%. It probably goes at 3 to 4% next year. That means we're going from 9 to, let's call it 4. So that's five points of disinflation. That means we should get at least five points of multiple expansion in 2023. P multiples likely go from 17 times to 22 times. That is significant P multiple expansion. So stocks are going to benefit from P multiple expansion in 2023, whereas they were hit by P multiple contraction in 2022. So now let's look at the other side of the equation, earnings. And this is where the real wild card comes in because everybody knows earnings are going to go down in 2023. Now the question is how much they go down. Is it going to be a 10% earnings recession, a 5% drawback, or is it going to be 20, 25%? In some economic recessions, you know, like 2008, for example, earnings dropped 50%. So there's a wide range of potential outcomes here. Are we going to pull back 5% on earnings or are we going to pull, pull back 50% on earnings? Based on all the data I'm looking at, uh, and specifically, I think the most important data metric here is the conference board's leading, economics, leading economic indicators index. If you look at that, you look at the LEI and you look at where we are on that, kind of like minus 0.7%, that is consistent with a 5 to 10% drawback in corporate EPS. So we're not looking at, based on the data today, we're not looking at a potential 20, 25, 30% drawdown in earnings next year, let alone a 50% drawdown in earnings. Now that it could get more severe, but I, again, am under the assumption that the Fed is going to pause its rate hikes in February and the U.S. economy is going to stabilize. And therefore, the leading economic indicators index is near a trough right now. So if that is true and the trough is about negative 0.7%, then that is consistent with around a 5 to 10% drop in earnings. So basically, I'm looking at 
25 to 30% P multiple expansion with a 5 to 10% drop in earnings, that gets you to a 20, 25% rally in stocks in 2023, right? You get the 30% upside on the P multiple, 5 to 10% downside on EPS. That's, you know, 30 minus 5 is 25, 30 minus 10 is 20. So that's how you get a 20 to 25% rally in 2023. So that's where I'm coming at it from. P multiples are going to expand meaningfully in 2023 as inflation crashes, because that always happens. And then two, earnings are only going to come down by five to 10%. So long story short, you're going to get massive P multiple expansion and very little earnings erosion. And that's going to lead to positive stock price momentum. Because you have to understand here in 2022, stocks crashed and earnings didn't fall. And that's because the P multiple compression was bigger than the earnings growth in 2022. And now I'm saying going into 2023, the P multiple expansion is going to be bigger than the earnings compression. And that is going to power a big rally. So I think we go at least 20% higher next year. And if that multiple goes even higher because inflation comes down faster than expected, treasury yields come in more than expected, then that's how you get a 25, 30, 35% rally next year. Or, you know, maybe earnings don't come down. Maybe we actually grow 5% next year. Maybe we're flat next year. That's how you start getting a 30% plus rally in stocks in 2023. But I think the numbers strongly support a rally of at least 20% and possibly a rally of at least 30% in the S&P 500 in 2023. So what's the uh, bearish scenario going into 2023? The bearish scenario is, is is twofold. So one, inflation doesn't come down. And so that P multiple doesn't um, expand in the way that it, it can or that it could if inflation um, does come down meaningfully. And then two, the Fed just doesn't heed the warning signs and actually hikes again in March and hikes into the summer. <laughs> then the economy, that, that LEI, that leading economic, indica- leading economic indicators index. Jesus, that's kind of a tongue twister, isn't it? Um, the LEI is going to come down to <laughs> minus three, minus five, minus seven, minus eight. Then you're going to see earnings come in about, you know, 20, 25, 30 percent. And then you start to get a low, you know, a very average P multiple with pretty low earnings. And, and that gets you to much lower stock prices. So that's the bearish case in, in 2023 is you need the Fed to not pause. You need the Fed to not heed every single warning sign out there. And I think that is almost a ridiculous thesis because you'd have to be operating under the assumption that the Fed is driving down a highway at 90 miles per hour with blindfolds on. Because there are so many warning signs out there. Every single leading indicator of US economic activity is falling and falling precipitously. And a lot of them are in sharply negative and or contraction territory. So you know, I don't and, and inflate all the readings on inflation too are coming in significantly. Um, and all the readings on the labor market, leading indicators of the labor market are coming in significantly. So every single warning sign is flashing yellow for them. I find it near impossible that they don't listen by February. But if they don't, we're screwed. You know, like <laughs> The, the economy is screwed. The market is screwed. And we will be in a, in a, in a rut for, you know, uh, quite a long period of time. But but the, the good news on that is actually I take that back. We'd be in a deep rut, but I think it won't be that long because in the bear case that the Fed doesn't pivot and that the Fed keeps hiking, the economy is in a point where it could start to crash in 2023. But the Fed has hiked rates enough. By that time, we'll be at 
5%, maybe 5%, maybe 5.25%. We'll be in that four and a half to five and a half range on, on interest rates. That means the Fed can cut rates a lot. They've saved up a lot of dry powder mm. for the next recession so that when the next recession does hit, mm. they can cut a lot. They can really help out. They can really stimulate. And so from that perspective, I actually think that if we do get a recession, even if it is a deep recession, it won't be a long recession because as soon as you start to see a deep recession in the numbers, the Fed will obviously pivot. And by that time, the Fed will likely have saved up, you know, five to five and a half points of rate cutting firepower. That's a lot of firepower to stimulate growth. That's a lot of firepower to stabilize the economy. That's a lot of firepower for 2024 to be a big year. So um, whether we get the boom in 23 or 24, I think a boom is definitely coming because the Fed has put themselves in a position to, to provide firepower for a boom. Um, and so that's why, you know, either way you, you slice this, this pie, I'm pretty bullish on stocks. I'm buying stocks here. I mean, just historically speaking, when, when tech stocks drop 30, 40% you buy them every single time you're going to make money. So, you know, looking at that fact, along with all the things I just talked about, I really don't see why you wouldn't be buying stocks here unless you need the money in 12 months for sure. Then you got to be a little bit more risk adverse. But I mean, if you're investing for a three, five, seven, ten year window, you should be really excited about about investing right now. It's a fabulous time to get into the market. All right, uh, great outlook for 2023. Uh, but let's zoom back into specific stocks and sectors. Uh, I want to talk about Tesla, Twitter, and the whole Elon Musk drama for a moment. Obviously, Tesla stock has crashed ever since Elon bought Twitter, mm -hmm. but a new report out today says Elon is actively seeking a new CEO for Twitter. So if Elon steps down from Twitter, what does this mean for Tesla stock? Does it come back up? Does it stay the same or does it continue to drop? Uh, great question. Yeah. Um, I think a, yes, Elon leaving Twitter, um, relieving himself as CEO would be a tailwind, a bonus, a plus for Tesla stock. And that's because for the reasons we've already talked about, which is Tesla is entering a period of uh, significant challenges from both ramping manufacturing internationally and facing growing and legitimate competition in the United States. So there's a lot of good execution that needs to be done over the next 12 months in order to ensure Tesla continues to grow like it has been growing. And that good, you know, as goes the head of a snake, so goes the body. Um, if the head of the snake is worried about free speech on Twitter, then, you know, the body of the snake probably won't execute the way that it could. Um, so I think that Elon leaving Twitter, you're just stopping with whatever he's doing over there, uh, would be a plus for Tesla stock. And then, I mean, if you look at the valuation, Tesla's down. What's interesting to me, though, and, you know, this is where I, I hold no position in Tesla. So I'm, I'm not trying to say it's a great stock or it's not a good stock. I, I, don't, I don't like it either way. Um, I was very bearish on it for a while. But when I look at the multiple on it, um, you know, it, it's pretty cheap now. I mean, Tesla stock is not a value stock, but I mean, it's trading at 25 times next year's earnings, you know, at, at, current, um, at current levels. Uh, the, the company is expected to grow those earnings significantly. Let's see. So you're, you're at 25 times forward earnings on the stock. 
with 55% revenue growth this year, 38% next year, uh, 156% EPS growth this year, 32% next year. So you're talking about a, you know, easily a 20% plus growth story trading at 25 times forward earnings. That's a pretty attractive combination. So I think that when you have a multiple like that with a growth profile, growth profile like that, even the smallest things, the smallest positive things can get the stock working again. So I think it, it paid to be bearish on Tesla for a while. I think it's time to probably relinquish that bear pressure a little bit, especially if Elon folds the whole Twitter Twitter drama and you get a you know more focus and strategy out of Tesla. Then I think that that's a recipe for Tesla stock to potentially grind higher in, in 2023. Again, I'm not incredibly bullish on it, but I'm not incredibly bearish anymore. As you know, I've been very bearish on Tesla stock, but now I find myself moving into a more neutral with a slight bearish slant, but a more neutral stance on the on the stock um, from where we are today. Um, the Twitter drama just just needs to stop, though. I, that That's not good for anybody. Politicizing a car brand, you, you don't want to do that. that that's just not smart. Okay, Luke, uh, now that we all know where you stand with Tesla, and I know you have your favorites, but I want to know your absolute favorite EV stock for 2023. You have a few, but give me the one big one for the next 12 months. Uh, next 12 months, top EV stock. I'm going to go with, um, I'm going to go with Fisker on this one, FSR. Um, I really, 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 really believe that Affordable electric vehicles will sell the best in 2023. Um, that stock is incredibly cheap. It's For me, it's going to be a question of can they actually hit their manufacturing targets or production targets next year. And given that the company has been through this rodeo before and knows exactly how not to do it and has taken every step in the book to make sure they do it right this time around, I have faith that they are going to execute on their production targets for 2023. If they do, then this company is going to be selling tens of thousands of cars a quarter by the end of next year. And that simply isn't reflected in the stock price at around seven to eight bucks. So I think Fisker stock can go to 20 in 2023. And I would say it is my favorite EV stock for the next 12 months. Okay. Uh, switching gears a little bit. All year long, you have been bullish on solar stocks. And it seems like you've recently actually increased your bullishness on the sector, despite many of the stocks actually winning big in 2022, which is a little unlike you. Normally, you like to buy dips and sell rips. So why are you getting even more bullish on solar stocks, even though they are ripping even higher? Right, right. No, great question. Um, this the, the fundamental business momentum in the solar industry is so robust right now. Um, last week, for example, McDonald's signed a big deal uh, to buy 190 megawatts of solar power to essentially power its entire U.S. supply chain. That I mean, that's that's crazy. And that's the biggest restaurant operator in, in America. And they're going all solar for their supply chain operations. I mean, that's huge. Uh, Meta just signed a big deal down in Georgia to power their data centers in the southeast uh, with solar power. So, I mean, that's huge. It's one of the world's biggest tech companies, one of the world's biggest data center operators now powering their data centers in, in America with all solar. Um, you, you've seen a lot of 
positive news developments in the industry, which and then really positive earnings from these companies, which just underscore that the momentum in this industry is it's stunning right now. Absolutely stunning. And to me, that momentum is only going to accelerate in 2023 because we've talked about this before. The world faced an energy crisis in 2022 because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The world had an option, specifically the governments of the world had an option to either solve that energy crisis by going backwards in time and doing more fossil fuels or by going forwards in time and accelerating the clean energy transition. And every single major government in the world chose the latter. The U.S. passed legislation to promote more clean energy adoption. All of Europe passed similar legislation. England passed similar legislation. China passed similar legislation. Japan passed similar legislation. Canada passed similar legislation. So every single major economy of the world, major government of the world, chose to solve the energy crisis of 2022 by accelerating the energy transition, by enacting legislation which accelerates the adoption of solar, hydrogen, battery energy storage systems, electric vehicles, so on and so forth. And so I think the momentum you're seeing in solar in 2022 is actually just the start. It's this first or second inning of a very long ball game that I expect to extend into the 2030s. And that is just the entire wholesale makeover of the global energy system to be based on clean energy technologies. Um, and then the recent you know, breakthrough with nuclear fusion is a huge win in that category as well. And that nuclear fusion is still many, 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 many years away from being a real economic viable reality empowering homes. But I think by 2030, you will have a few nuclear fusion reactors and they will be powering a lot of energy in the world. So um, I think that 2022, the success solar stocks have had is just a preview of what's to come in 23, 24, 25, 26, do all the way into 2030. And that's why I remain very bullish on our solar stocks going into next year. Even though those solar stocks have been up big, technically, you know, a lot of times I'd like to sell that rally and go and buy something that's not working and wait for that to rebound and ride that higher. But with solar stocks, I'm sticking with the rally because I think that whole energy transition movement is gaining a lot of traction. I like to own solar. I like to own hydrogen. I like to own battery energy storage. I like to own EVs. I like to own, um, uh, nuclear plays. So I just want to, I want exposure to that, that whole world. And I want as much exposure as I can get, because I think that the future, I mean, governments have decided the future and you can fight against it all you want, but governments have decided clean energy is, is the way of the future and get with the movement or get left behind. And that's, I'm going to get with the movement. I'm going to make money by getting with the movement. So that's why I remain very bullish on, on solar stocks, despite their success in 2022. So with your kind of hands in all these different pots of alternative energy, do those do you see those having the same growth in 2023 or is solar the one that's going to see the most? What's going to see the most like what clean energy, what niche of the clean energy world is going to see the most growth in 2023? Is that your question? Yeah. Um, I would say either nuclear or battery energy storage. 
Um, but I would say solar is the safest pick of the of all of them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That solar is not going to see the biggest growth in 2023, but it's going to mm-hmm. it has the highest probability of seeing good growth in 2023 because that movement's mm-hmm. already underway. There's already a lot of developments. The projects have already been signed. So I think that there's a very high probability of excellent growth in solar in 2023. But I think the highest upside potential will come in either the nuclear plays or in the battery energy storage plays, and in both. Those industries, we are also seeing a lot of positive developments. We talked about nuclear, nuclear fusion breakthrough, a couple of nuclear reactors coming back online. We're seeing some very good stuff happening there. VC investment, and I just read the statistic. So six years, seven years ago, 2015, um, $11 million, just $11 million of venture capital was put into nuclear startups. So VC investment was $11 million in nuclear tech in 2015. Do you want to guess what it is this year so far? A lot more than that. We were at 11 million in 2015. Just give me a number where where we are now. Uh, 50. 50 million? Yeah. We are at 1.1 billion. We've gone from- We've gone from 10, 11, 12 million dollars in 2015 to 1.1 billion dollars of venture capital invested into nuclear technologies in 2022 alone. And that's not even, we're not even at the end of the year. Um, so, you know, maybe that's 1.2, 1.3 by the end of the year. A lot of not deal making happen in the last two weeks of the year. But still, point being, you have huge technological breakthroughs coupling with massive resources. That is a powerful combination. That's a potent cocktail for very big technological improvements and commercial improvements in the nuclear industry over the next five to 10 years. So I think nuclear stocks have a lot of upside in 23. And then battery energy storage. I mean, I'm every day, go to energystorage.news. I think that's the website, energy-storage.news. Go to that website and just every single day, you'll see two or three or four more headlines about Energy storage deployment in Ireland, energy storage deployment in Australia, energy deployment storage in uh, in uh, Spain, in, in U.S., in California, and everywhere. Every day you'll read about a new BESS being deployed somewhere. So that movement is really gaining a lot of momentum. Solar plus energy storage, that's the future. I think you're going to see a lot, a lot of growth in the energy storage names. Um, we talked about it last week. One of our favorite names in the space, Fluence, they had a monster quarter. That stock soared. It stayed hot. That's one that's been a big winner off the lows. It's more than doubled. Actually, almost tripled off its lows. And that's what we're sticking with. I think that one can continue to work very, very well because this is a growth story in the early innings of a transformational narrative. So really like the energy storage space, really like nuclear space, really like the solar space. And I like them all, Aaron. The clean energy transition, it's a huge opportunity, multi-million dollar opportunity. These companies... They're not even multi-hundred, they're not even multi-ten billion dollar companies. You know, we're talking about companies that are five billion dollar market caps, two billion dollar market caps, eight billion dollar market caps, and they're pioneering a multi-trillion dollar change. So that's that's the opportunity we're talking about here. These are potential multi-hundred billion dollar companies in the future, trading for less than fifty billion dollars today. So I I like that. I like that setup. I'm with these names for the long haul. So speaking of the long haul, and this brings me to my next question, is that you mentioned how solar is, a, is probably the safest uh, energy play going into 2023. Uh, you've always stated how you're in, you like stocks when they're in the long haul. You look at a five to 10 year outlook. 
with all these emerging energy plays that are coming up right now, where do you see solar in five to 10 years? Uh, I think solar will remain a very important mix of the energy system. Um, I think the there is a risk that if nuclear fusion gets really, really good, that it makes everything else obsolete, except for hydrogen, because hydrogen is actually the input for um, nuclear fusion reactors. So you have to do electrolysis and then you, you put that hydrogen into a nuclear fusion reactor and then boom, you get the power. So hydrogen and nuclear fusion could just be the ultimate solution one day. But if that ultimate solution does come to be, it won't come to be until 2040, maybe. So, um, and I don't think it ever will be like completely, uh, it won't ever completely obsolete everything else um, because the infrastructure will be built for everything else. So in the meantime, in the next 10 to 15 years and in the future that I can see, um, I think solar will forever play a very meaningful and increasingly important part of our energy system. Because what else are we going to do today? What else are we going to do in 23? What else are we going to do in 24? Um, nuclear fusion, great tests. Love them. Keep running those tests. But we're not building a nuclear fusion reactor in California in 2023. Can't do it. Mm-hmm. What we can do is build massive solar farms. And what we are doing is building massive solar farms. Um, so when you look at, we need immediate solutions to solve this energy crisis. Um, and the immediate solution right now, the best immediate solution is solar. And so because of that, I think the growth outlook, even five to 10 years is, is very positive, um, for solar. And again, I think if you, you know, look ahead five, 10, 15, 20 years, it's going to be a mix of everything. You're going to have solar panels on roofs. You're going to have hydrogen centers providing utility level power for cities. You're going to have um, battery energy storage systems, both, you know, grid, you know, utility grid scale and residential ones. You're going to have windmills, offshore windmills, windmills in the mountains, windmills in valleys. You're going to have all of this working together to create limitless energy. And so I don't think we can say, oh, well, solar is going to obsolete wind or nuclear is going to obsolete solar or batteries are going to obsolete this. Or that. I don't think any of them are going to obsolete any of them. I think they're all going to work together to create a world where we have ample energy. Because think of it this way. We're in an energy crisis in 2022 because energy demand is exceeding energy supply. Energy demand is going to keep going up because one population growth, we have what, 8 billion people in the world now. We're probably going to get to 10, 11 billion by 2050. I think that's, that's the estimate. So we're going to get population growth. Each person requires energy. So that's going to create more energy demand. And then you're getting increasing digitization and urbanization, right? There are still hundreds of millions of people in Africa and China that aren't connected to the internet, aren't living in cities, do not have the energy consumption that, you know, a person in America does or a person in, in Germany does. That that's going to continue to change and those people are going to continue to connect to internet. So they're going to get population growth, urbanization, and digitization. Those three things are going to cause energy demand to continue to grow at an accelerated pace over the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. So we need energy supply to grow more than that. And in order to do that, we're going to need all these things to work together. It's not just going to be one thing that's going to allow us to grow energy supply by 8% per year over the next 50 years. No, we need all those things to work together, and then we can create a world of energy surplus. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> great on alternate energy. I want to switch gears here and talk about uh, the new Avatar movie. Um, oh. I read something like it needs to do $2 billion to break even on the budget. Uh, early numbers are tracking below those estimates. I know that some of that has to do with the continuing COVID battle in China, but 
overall, this can't be good for Disney stock, correct? <laughs> yeah, I have. Have you seen the new movie, the new Avatar? I have not. I was. I'll be honest. I was not a fan of the first, and have no interest in the second. Okay, so I was a fan of the first. Okay. And I'm going to wait until it comes out on streaming to watch it. Okay. And I, I mean, think you've waited this long. You might as well wait a few more months. I, I think therein lies the problem with Avatar, with the box office, with movie theaters. Um, yes, I, I, there are a whole bunch of people out there, and I've read reviews and comments. No, you need to see this in the theater. You need to see it in IMAX. You need to mm-hmm. see it, you know... But everybody saying that either runs a movie theater, works for a movie theater chain, works in the movie industry, works for Disney or did something for that movie, did an ad or did the sound or whatever. Everybody that's saying you need to see this in a theater is somebody that has a vetted interest in the movie doing well in the theater. Shocker. Nobody else, no casual fan is like, I went to the movie, saw it and came out and was like, oh my God, you need to see it in the theaters. Because that just doesn't exist anymore. Why do I need to see it in in the theaters? Like, I, mm-hmm. why? That is that isn't. I mean, because it's a bigger screen. At home TVs are huge now, and they're not that expensive for massive TVs, and they come in such high quality. I mean, it's it's insane. And then you have these at home projectors now too, where it's like you can you know you have a little projector box, like a thousand bucks. They can blow up a screen, hundred inches, hundred fifty inches. Great sound, great effects, great visuals. I mean, you don't. What's the movie theater for? You know, I like having the movie theater because I like going on, you know, it mixes up date night for me once every three or four months. But that's about it. And I think that's the extent to which, you know, a lot of people are are shifting their, their movie going preferences. And that's why even a film as hyped up as Avatar, supposed to do 150 mil in the box office domestically in weekend one, did I think 134. Um, and continues to track below estimates. That's why even a film like that is is not going to do what it would have done five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago. And so I, I like, you know, AMC and other companies that are trying to reinvent themselves as destinations and experiences as opposed to just movie houses. Right. They serve dinner now. They got reclining seats. They serve drinks. They have bars in the front. Like that's a smart move because malls were able to reinvent themselves in the 2010s, successful malls by becoming experienced destinations. Basically the malls that survived were the ones that kicked out the gaps and the Abercrombies and the urban outfitters and put in steakhouses and bowling alleys and movie theaters and became experienced destinations that and gyms that the big one for a lot of mall tenants now are gyms. Um, that the malls that did that are the ones that have succeeded and continue to thrive today. And so theaters need to do the same thing and they are doing that same thing, but still I don't think the pie for movie going is ever going to be as big as it once was. And I think it's especially true in places where COVID fears remain significant, which is in China, one of the biggest movie markets. Uh, That's where Avatar is really underwhelming is in China. So um, I just think the, the big problem here is that movie theaters are, not facing extinction, but facing steady erosion. And that erosion is not going to stop anytime soon. Fortunately, I don't think Disney stock really trades off the box office. Disney is a content machine. And Disney's going to figure out a way to monetize that content even without box office. That's why they have Disney Plus. That's why they have, you know, they release things too straight to Disney Plus, why you can buy things in Disney Plus, all that stuff. That Disney's a content machine. 
they will survive as a great company. They will produce a lot of cash flows and profits, even if movies do entirely go extinct. Movie theaters go entirely go extinct because people still want to watch content regardless. So Avatar's relative flop in the box office so far to me is is not a knock against Disney stock. It's a knock against AMC stock. It's a knock, knock against movie theater stocks. Uh, but it's not a knock against the content machine of Disney. And it's not a knock against um, what that company can and will do and what Bob Iger can and will do for that firm over the next next 12 months. Again, remember, Iger was the streaming guy. And so I imagine over the mm -hmm. next 12 months, the box office release, I mean, that's going to be deprioritized so much. It's going to be streaming, 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 and a little bit more streaming. And I think that focus gets the stock to work. I, really, I, I do like Disney stock. I think Disney stock looks pretty appealing. All right. Uh, well, that covers all our topics, but we have a few fan questions. Starting off with Savjorn Singlestad. Haven't heard about skills for a long time. Could you please comment on Ooh. that one? Wow. Yeah, I mean, what is skills doing? I haven't... Um, we uh, we eliminated exposure to skills a very, very, very <laughs> long time ago. Um, holy... Whoa, it's at 60 cents. Um... Yeah, Skills is uh, is a trash company. I don't I, I don't see anything anything there. Um, when they went public, the hype was that they were going to be able to monetize uh, help um, uh, video game firms, mobile video game firms, monetize their content in a different way. But uh, as it turned out, I mean, the games they were transforming were. I mean, games nobody really plays, and it, 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 the, the content portfolio was not good. Um, and so they it had a great narrative, and it sounded great, but it became increasingly clear throughout 2021 that they just were not going to be able to do what they said they were going to do, and they were not the future of gaming at all, and they had a massive cash burn problem. So that stock has sunk and sunk and sunk. We eliminated exposure way back in 2021, um, and it looks like this thing has just kept – declining significantly and, and very nastily over the past 12 months. So thank God we did eliminate exposure, but yeah, even at 60 cents, I mean, it's, it's a penny stock I'd avoid. I, I, I don't see anything there. I don't see any upside with skills. Um, great idea, bad execution, uh, wasn't able to get the content they needed. I, I think that stock's dead money, probably goes to zero. All right. Uh, next question from Rusty Russ. If we do have a recession, which we are likely to, wouldn't we see the velocity of decline of inflation pick up, meaning reaching the goal faster than expected? Yes, absolutely. Look at what happened to inflation in 2008. It literally straight line dropped. Yes, um, I think we are on track to lose about 30 to 40 basis points of inflation every single month for the foreseeable future. But if we get a nasty, nasty recession, then, you know, yeah, that'll turn into, you know, we could lose 200 basis points in a month or 250 basis points in a month. That's that's very possible. So, um, uh, yes, if we get a deep recession, then the disinflation trend will be accelerated. And um, that's something the Fed has to obviously knows and it's something the fed will continue to monitor but i i don't think a deep recession is in the cards i think a shallow recession is in the cards a very shallow recession but that shallow recession will also help the disinflation trend absolutely all right uh, and our last question from dennis 
Any thoughts on biotech, major stocks, and preferences, etc.? Uh... Yeah, yes, I can't really give out names. What's interesting enough is, you know, we run this, this new, one of our newer services is a thing called Breakout Trader. Um, and what we do is we actually have a quantitative system that scans the entire market for stocks that are in breakout mode. And we buy those stocks and we ride them higher. It's very much a momentum trend following type trading strategy uh, that's geared towards just boom, 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 you know, riding hot stocks higher. And we've had some pretty big winners recently, um, and they most of them have been biotech stocks because biotech stocks have been able to move higher even in this bear market simply because their catalysts are economically independent. They don't depend on the economy. That if the economy goes into deep recession or not in 2023, people are still going to have, you know, medical problems, health problems. They're still going to need drugs. And so if these companies pass FDA trials or whatever and they, they get endorsement, however it works, if that progress continues at a impressive and healthy manner, then the stocks will move higher. So yes, a lot of the biotech stocks out there are actually working pretty well um, if they have good data. And that's how it's always going to be, that in good or bad markets, biotech stocks will move based on their pipeline and the development of their pipeline as opposed to the economy, because they truly do not depend on the economy outside of additional financing and fundraising. So if you're looking at a biotech stock right now, the one thing I'd say is find a stock that is very well capitalized, is not going to require additional financing, and has a promising pipeline. If you have that, I think you have a chance for a pretty big winner um, in, in the stock market. So we found a few with our breakout trader system. Can't give away the names right now, but um, we are selectively bullish on the biotech space. Without giving, without giving away names, are there any specific biotech technologies that you're excited about going into 2023? Mm. There's, there's a lot of them. Um, I, I mean, gene editing technologies are very interesting. Um, and I think a, a firm working on the cutting edge of gene editing medicines is a potential firm with a lot of upside. All right. Uh, well, great insights for our listeners and HGI investors. As always, Luke, do you have any last words before we wrap today? Merry Christmas. Happy <laughs> Nice sweater. Um, no, so seriously, everyone enjoy the holiday season. Um, it's, I think one thing we're going to stand is it's been a horrendous year for investors, but horrendous years don't repeat. Um, the stock market rarely has back-to-back declines after it's dropped more than, than 18%. Actually, in fact, if when stocks drop more than 18% in a single year, uh, they never fall the next year. Um, the only exception is in the early 1930s with the Great Depression, and this is not the Great Depression. So um, in the past 95 years, every time the stock market, the S&P 500 has dropped more than 18% in the year, stocks have rallied the next year uh, and rallied pretty big. Um, the S&P 500 has had more than 60 down, 60 days, 60 trading days of falling more than 1%. That's one of its highest ever. Every time it's had more than 60 trading days of being down more than 1%, the stock market rally the next year. Again, the only exception is the early 1930s, and this is not that. So what you have to understand when you zoom out and look at the big picture is it's been a horrendous year for the stock market. It's been a horrendous year for retail investors. According to some metrics, the worst year ever for retail investors. 
um, is that these periods do not last. This too shall pass. And it increasingly appears we're at the tail end of this bear market and that a new bull market will inevitably and eventually arrive. And when it does arrive, it's the people that survived through this, persevered through this, and were able to find bargains in this storm that are going to not just win big when the bull market arrives, but continue to win big because of those positions for many years to come. So it may not feel like there's a lot to celebrate on the stock market front at the Christmas table this, um, this December 25th. But indeed, there probably is more to celebrate this year than any other year because you have a tremendous opportunities out there and capitalizing on them will allow you to do very well over the next three, five, ten years. So I, for one, am actually very excited about what the market did this year and I'm very excited about what it's giving me the opportunity to do and the positions allowing me to put myself into for the next 12, 24, 36 months. So that's what I had to say as we go into the holiday season. And um, I hope it, it adds a little cheery note to everybody's holiday vacation as we, we head into the end of the year. Well, you definitely bought some Christmas cheer to me. I want to thank everybody for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover. And as always, see if we can answer any of your burning questions. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will be off next week for the holidays, but back in two weeks and see you all in the new year. Until then, enjoy the holidays with friends and family, and have a safe and happy new year. Bye, all.